this week. Toys R Us discloses bidders for its assets in Canada and Europe. First Energy settles, in principle, with two creditor groups. And Comstock Resources has a new deal with Jerry Jones. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Nick Lichtenberg. And I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, distressed debt legal analyst Teresa Lee will lead a deep dive about the international credits Noble Group, Steinhoff, Oro Negro, and Venezuela. It's Sunday, April 29th. Last weekend, Toys R Us unveiled the final bidders for the sale of equity in its Canadian operations and the sale of certain European assets, its stores in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. The stocking horse bidder in Canada, Fairfax Financial, will acquire the debtor's equity in the business for $300 million Canadian. And Smith's Toys Superstores will buy the European assets for 79 million euros. The debtors are seeking approval of an investment banker to sell their intellectual property and have set in court filings that the IP, such as Jeffrey the Giraffe, is the quote, link holding global operations together. Smiths will rebrand the stores in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, while the Canadian sale includes IP rights. First Energy Corp reached an agreement in principle with two FES creditor groups this week, according to an announcement by the non-debtor parent company. The groups consist of the ad hoc group that holds pollution control and corporate notes and holders of 6.85% pass-through certificates due 2034, issued in connection with the sale leaseback transactions connected to the Bruce Mansfield plant. That plant is named after a former executive for Ohio Edison who was an active philanthropist in the Akron, Ohio area, not to be confused with the Australian television and radio personality. The two groups hold the majority of the debtors' secured and unsecured debt and have agreed to use, quote, best efforts to convince the UCC and other key creditors to join the settlement by June 15th. Counsel for the debtors and the UCC called the settlement a, quote, encouraging development at the second day hearing on Thursday. Then they said they would undertake a, quote, thorough and deliberate evaluation of the proposed settlement terms, which include the parent and non-debtor subsidiaries releasing claims against the debtors and making a cash payment, and the Mansfield claims being allowed in the amount of $786.76 million. Comstock Resources unveiled a series of, quote, comprehensive refinancing transactions at the beginning of April, but ripped those up and started again on Thursday. Both sets of transactions involved Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones and his company Arcoma Drilling, though. The initial plan involved a $75 million investment in Comstock's common stock by Jones, but now Comstock plans to sell 84% of its shares to the owner of America's team. The transactions would be structured so that Comstock would acquire interests in North Dakota oil and gas assets, owned by Arcoma, in exchange for 88.6 million newly issued shares, priced at $7 each. Comstock also said it was withdrawing the previously announced tender offers for all of its secured notes, and it now intends to retire these notes after the North Dakota acquisition is complete, accompanied by a new revolver and new senior unsecured notes. Comstock was urged at the beginning of the month to, quote, strongly reconsider the previous transactions by investor Knighthead Capital Management, which has not yet commented on the new deal with Jerry Jones. 
On the island of Puerto Rico, account balances for the Commonwealth and its instrumentalities showed an increase of more than $500 million from February 28th to March 31st, reaching total balances of just under $8 billion. Lots of parties want a closer look at the Commonwealth's finances. On Tuesday, in the matter in which creditors are seeking Rule 2004 discovery on the information and methodology underlying the fiscal plan, Judge Laura Taylor Swain in New York remanded certain aspects of the dispute to Magistrate Judge Judith Gale Dean for further proceedings. And the same day, labor unions, nonprofit organizations, and an individual bondholder filed an adversary proceeding, challenging the constitutionality of the PROMESA Oversight Board and calling for an audit of public debt. For its part, the Oversight Board is engaged in conversations with the administration of Governor Ricardo Rosselló about, quote, improving the fiscal plan, which was certified last week, according to a radio interview. The Oversight Board has also released its fiscal 2019 revenue forecast and a revised timeline to craft and enact a budget for the next fiscal year starting July 1st. And the Oversight Board has disclosed the status of the continuing mediation efforts in the ongoing Title III cases. The parties are currently focused on, quote, resolution of the dispute between the Commonwealth and COFINA regarding ownership of sales and use taxes. Our other top-read stories this week were, number one, our new coverage of American Tire Distributors, which is grappling with the defection of supplier Goodyear. Number two, earnings for PetSmart, which reported EBITDA falling to $203 million, and same-store sales down 3.7% year-over-year in the fourth quarter. And number three, a Nine West ad hoc 2019 bondholder group forming with White and Case advising. And now we'll pass it over to Jim Holloway in Houston after last week's Socratic wisdom from Angelo Thalassinos for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thank you, Karen, and good morning one and all from Houston, where the big thing this week is the OTC, the Offshore Technology Conference, with 2,000 exhibitors and 70,000 attendees over five days down at NRG Stadium. Everyone who's anybody in the world of offshore gas and exploration and production will be swapping business cards, war stories, and prayers that we will see $100 oil before we see $30 again. And, of course, this week happens four times a year instead of once every four years. I mean, of course, the Excel Olympics, better known as earnings season, with barge loads of companies scheduled to report, discuss results, and take your questions. And there's the usual barrage of court-related items, too. And for a complete calendar this busy week, I'd refer you all to our week ahead, released every Monday morning at 6.30 a.m. ET, but here's some of the highlights. On Monday, April 30th, a bid deadline for the Weinstein companies. Tuesday, May 1st, the coupon is due for Hovnanian's 8% of 2019 and closing arguments for the Cumulus Plan confirmation and earnings from Intelsat, Community Health, and Frontier Communications, among others. And Wednesday, May 2nd, Rex Energy has kicked the can, and this is where it landed. The senior term loan lender forbearance expires today, as well as the grace period for its second liens due 2020 a planned DS hearing for Remington, and a credit bid hearing for Weinstein. And on the earnings front, ones to watch are Avis, Legacy Reserves, and Hornbeck Offshore. Community Health will be holding its earnings call. Thursday, May 3rd, Hornbeck holds its call, as does Avis, and so too Legacy Reserves. And we also have results from Teva, Bombardier, and Weight Watchers. Hubnanian's exchange officers expire, and mark your calendars for this. Reorg will be holding its second quarter webinar on Puerto Rico. Friday, May 4th, it's the Weinstein again, this time in auction. 
a second-day hearing for VER Technologies, and results from Vistra and Vantage. And that's all from me. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now we'll turn to our deep-dive look at international credits of interest. Over to you, Teresa. Thanks, and welcome to this month's catch-up on international credits. I'm Teresa Lee, and I have with me today Distressed Analyst Ben Kovaka, who is in our London office. Prior to joining Reorg Research, Ben was a workout analyst for the Institutional Clients Group at Citi, where he was responsible for the stressed and distressed portfolio. And then, of course, we also have Kyle Owusu, Senior Distressed Analyst, who covers our international credits. Prior to joining Reorg Research, Kyle was a research analyst at Loeb King Capital Management, where he focused on merger arbitrage, long short, high yield, and special situations. Okay, so let's start with Noble Group. We have an interesting situation going on here where the company has announced its own restructuring and has actually gotten support from 70% of its creditors for its own RSA. Meanwhile, there is a shareholder, Goldilocks, which is an Abu Dhabi hedge fund, that is trying to propose an alternative restructuring driven by shareholders. On April 20th, Noble received a letter from Goldilocks seeking to nominate five non-executive directors to the company's board, which Noble rejected. Ben, what do we know about this alternative restructuring proposed by Goldilocks? Hi, and thank you, Teresa. So in short, we really don't know much. But to put everything in perspective, Goldilocks, which is an Abu Dhabi fund, as you mentioned, owns 8.2% of the company and is among the largest shareholders. The largest uh, holder is Richard Alman, who owns 18.2% through his Noble Holdings Limited, and he is in full support of restructuring. Uh, once the terms have been amended that 15% of new equity goes to um, to current shareholders, which he called FAIR. Now, uh, CIC owns 9.5%, uh, Orbis owns 8%, and then we have a multitude of much smaller holders. Uh, on Friday, April 20th, Goldilocks released a note that itself and a consortium of like-minded investors are prepared to provide Noble with working capital and trade finance. And the fund also said that a specific proposal is currently being developed and it will be shared with all stakeholders. The fund asserted that their plan preserves value for all stakeholders and ensures long-term and sustainable survival. However, no detailed plan has been provided by Goldilocks. And this has been reiterated by Paul Bro um, in a letter to stakeholders on April 25th. Now, on the other hand, 83% of senior creditors have already signed up to the RSC proposed by the company, and really it would be quite hard for Goldilocks to gain support. And as previously mentioned on the shareholder side, uh, we have uh, Noble Holdings Limited, vehicle of Richard Alman, that is also in support of the of the RSC proposed by the company. Now, in response to all of this, Bro went to attack Goldilocks for destroying value for uh, for all the stakeholders, as the actions of the fund jeopardize the interests of the of the supporting shareholders and creditors, and, and, and really that the, the delaying the process um, is in no one's interest. So the, 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 what we have now is RSA proposed by the company. And uh, once the shareholders vote takes, takes place on this RSA, if there is su sufficient support for it, Noble's restructuring uh, uh, will go ahead. And then alternatively, um, if, if there's not enough shareholder support, uh, the company is looking to enter into a prepackaged administration in the UK. So in response, Goldilocks filed two lawsuits uh, 
on the 25th of April. Um, and, and really these are seeking to prevent uh, an AGM meeting, uh, which is uh, due to happen on Monday 30th of April. And the first of these two lawsuits is seeking to allow Goldilocks to propose uh, directors to Noble's board. And the second one is attempting to prevent the company from making any further connections with the UK, uh, where the Noble is threatening to do a prepack, should there not be uh, enough shareholder support for the, for the RSE proposed by the company. Now, in March, Noble said that it would be required to seek insolvency protection if it fails to garner support for its debt restructuring. Noble already announced that it would not pay the interest payment due on its 8.75% senior notes due 2022, or the payments on principal and interest due on its 3.625% senior notes due 2018. What exactly is going on with the company's capital structure, and what are all the moving pieces here? And how does Noble's RSA compare to what's being proposed by Goldilocks? So there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, first, um, to provide a quick overview of the capital structure for... Uh, for the people who are not familiar with um, with the situation or the company, there are currently three bonds uh, with total of uh, 2.3 billion outstanding, and there's also fully drawn 1.143 billion RCF, and uh, all of the bonds and the RCF are pari passu, which uh, brings the total debt to uh, about uh, 3.3.5 uh, billion. Then there is further 400 million in perpetual capital securities outstanding. Uh, now the RSA proposed uh, by the company would see uh, would, would see the new co- uh, the new company have capital structure comprising three credit facilities uh, split uh, split among uh, three bonds um, then uh, 200 million in preference shares and uh, an equity split uh, uh, among creditors uh, management and shareholders now 70 percent of the equity would go to the creditors uh, 15% would go to the management and 15% would go to the existing shareholders. Uh, uh, the perpetuals could get up to uh, 25 million in new perpetual bonds. Um, and this this has changed since uh, since the RSA was uh, first proposed. So so the initial offer by the uh, in the RSA was 15 million in cash. Um, and to be honest, uh, given the uncertain future of the company and uh, and dividends that can be deferred on these securities, uh, whether whether the perpetual capital holders are getting a better deal here is uh, is really questionable. So the the RSA offered by Noble results in forty six point three percent recovery in par reinstated debt, assuming that all creditors subscribe to the new trade finance facility, which um, which is an additional new working capital facility to basically fund uh, fund the trading operation of the com- uh, of, of the company and uh, if less than full risk subscription uh, recovery is higher than the 26.3 percent threshold for the creditors that do subscribe for the new trade finance facility and lower for those that don't uh, which basically incentivizes everyone to to kind of provide uh, provide new money for this for this trade facility and uh, recovery goes as high as 100% for the participants in the new risk facility if the subscription uh, for the new facility is less than uh, 1.25 billion. Uh, uh, however, uh, really what we have here, if, uh, if someone's getting 100% recovery, and this is all subject to, to putting uh, money into the new risk facility, uh, 
the people that cannot provide uh, new money into the risk facility would just would just um, you know sell off uh, sell off uh, their bonds or their share in the RCF to the to the people that uh, that can provide the new money until until we, we really every, everyone is going to provide new money which results in the 46.3 percent uh, recovery for everyone and uh, and then the equity recovery also becomes a function uh, of the recovery in credit among the two groups the risk participants and the creditors that do not participate in the new trade finance facility uh, but basically in effect there will always be 1.8 billion uh, of creditors uh, claims to be equitized uh, for the 70% of equity in the new company. And the way you split this among the risk and non-risk participants uh, changes basically according to uh, how many uh, creditors do decide to put in new money. So what the company is looking to do, it, uh, it is looking to split the assets in two buckets essentially. On one side we have uh, Nobles Asian um, trading and strategic relationships, which is focused, uh, as I said, on trading in energy and primarily coal. Uh, but the company will also trade steel, metals, and freight. So the company is estimating ramp up in 2018, and the steady state EBITDA is guided to be around 200 million uh, in 2019 onwards. And uh, Noble is planning uh, for this to support 700 million uh, working capital facility, uh, which will have the first floating charge over the assets. And, and then we will also have 685 million facility, with second charge over the assets, uh, and 8.75% uh, uh, coupon, uh, stepping up to 9.75%, and also a subordinated 270 million bond that, uh, that also steps up to 9.75% uh, uh, PIYC coupon. So essentially, at minimum, the company is looking to pay uh, 66.8 million in cash coupon uh, along the rate it has to pay on the working capital facility with further non-cash interest payments every year. And and to be honest, this is likely to consume at least half of uh, the EBITDA on cash basis and is almost completely going to uh, erode the profitab profitability of the company. So also given the working capital intensity of the business, the company is likely to be around seven times levered uh, at the trading uh, level, leaving uh, very thin cash in, if any, for shareholders. And uh, the competitors generally rely on very low interest rates, given the razor thin margins uh, of, uh, of traders um, that, uh, that are very re required basically to sustain the, the business model. Uh, and this begs the question whether, whether Noble's 10% interest rates make this prohibitive. So, so the second leg of the of the RSA is establishing um, an asset co, uh, which will uh, host Harbor Energy, Jamalco, Noble Plantation, and Vessels assets. And Noble estimates that the value of these uh, is uh, around eight hundred fifty nine million, and uh, half of it uh, half of this is concentrated in Jamalco. And the bonds issued against this entity will have notional value of uh, seven hundred million, uh, offering ten percent uh, pick interest rate. And there will also be a further 200 million in preference shares. So um, Iceberg Research, uh, um, the the, uh, the company that first raised questions about Noble's uh, accounting, argued that the interest rates uh, uh, that the company will be paying on its capital structure uh, makes the business uh, model unviable. 
Um, but from liquidity standpoint, uh, most of the interest rate will be paid in kind or the, uh, or only if the company can. And as such, it will not really consume as much cash as the company asserts. Um, but uh, we will see the impact of the of the of of the high interest rates uh, on the income statement and. Uh, and also that the liquidity pressure will come once the once as the securities mature. Now, this alternative restructuring is not the only tactic that Goldilocks is pursuing. The hedge fund actually filed a lawsuit against the company and six of its directors in Singapore, arguing that from 2011 to the present, the six directors, quote, concocted and affected two schemes to prefer their own interests over Noble's interest, unquote, and that all seven owed fiduciary and or equitable duties to Noble. Can you tell us a little bit about that lawsuit? So Goldilocks increased its investment in Noble in July of 2017 from 5% to 8.2%. And this is just when the troubles and questions regarding the business model of the company were uh, were resurfacing again. And, and to be honest, they were in the markets for several years already. Now, um, if the fund really sees the blame with the management of the company, which uh, their lawsuit against them would suggest, and uh, and they assert that there is value uh, left over in the company, they might pursue a strategy of trying to run the company w- with a new management. And uh, and as mentioned, this this narrative is really supported by their continued attacks on uh, attacks on the on the current management and uh, and fight against the um, against the equity that the management was is due to receive as a part of the company proposed RSA. But but. One issue with this is uh, the level of uh, intellectual property and knowledge of the business that rests with uh, with the management, and uh, and also the relationship nature of this business. And it is very likely that uh, the loss of current management and and knowledge of the market, the processes, as well as the relationship uh, relationships with uh, with the clients, could be the final nail in in the coffin for Noble. So. So, so really, it uh, it kind of uh, begs the question: uh, How does uh, how does Goldilocks uh, intend to run this uh, this operation? And uh, it is it is also difficult to see the alternative that the Goldilocks might propose. Um, the shareholders are deeply underwater, and uh, and in aggregate, the creditors are uh, only getting less than fifty percent recovery in re- reinstated debt. So, so, so really. Goldilocks is working uh, with 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 a pie that they have to redistribute between shareholders, management, and creditors, and uh, and really, to gain more value for shareholders, they they either have to take take away some some recovery from the management or from the creditors compared to the current plan, and uh, and to gain creditor support, uh, I mean you you definitely would not want to. Uh, want to take any more value from them because because that would just kind of incentivize them to uh, to stick to the to the RSA currently proposed by the company. So what are the next steps here? <laughs> so the thing to watch is obviously the shareholder meeting scheduled for April thirtieth, uh, as well as the outcome of the two lawsuits that Goldilocks launched on the twenty fifth. Now um, Goldilocks is attempting to prevent the meeting through a lawsuit in Singapore. Um, and uh, prevent the management from pushing the RSA through uh, through UK, and uh, it's uh, also as mentioned suing uh, the company directors. But uh, if the meeting is not prevented, uh, it it really becomes a question of the shareholder support for for the RSA proposed by the company, 
and and we do have these uh, two outcomes that uh, that the company offered. One of them is that uh, if if there is support of the shareholders, the company will go through with the restructuring, and uh, and if there is not, the assets will be transferred to a UK vehicle and um, and go through a prepack scheme in the UK. All right. So now I'm going to move to Kyle and touch on some of what's going on with Steinhoff. So, Kyle, Steinhoff's former chairman, Christo Visa, recently served some summons. Uh, can you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, sure. Steinhoff's, uh, like you said, Steinhoff's chairman served a summons on the parent co, Steinhoff International Holdings NV, and another entity, Steinhoff International Holdings Proprietary Limited. Visa is pursuing a 59 billion rand claim, or roughly 3.92 billion euros, the two claims relate to cash investments that were made by Visa's Titan Group in Steinhoff in 2015 and 2016. So first, in, in 2015, uh, Titan subscribed for shares in Steinhoff uh, after the acquisition of, of Pepcor Limited from Pepcor's shareholders. So the way that that deal worked, basically Steinhoff acquired 92.34% of Pepcor's issue, sh- issued share capital in November 2014 for 62.8 billion rand and the terms of the deal called for Steinhoff to buy out Titan's 52.5% or 52.47% I should say uh, interest um, and in return um, Titan subscribed for roughly 609 million ordinary shares of Steinhoff at a price per share of 57 uh, per 57 rand per Steinhoff share um, in 2016, the Titan Group allegedly injected capital into Steinhoff in order for Steinhoff to meet debt obligations um, related to the, the mattress firm acquisition. Um, and again, to, to remind our listeners, Steinhoff bought mattress firm uh, in August of 2016 for 64 per share in cash. Um, the, the media presentation that described the deal and several other uh, tender offer documents, etc., cetera, uh, pointed to a bridge facility and three separate term loans as the, as the funding structure. Um, and we've, we've recently, we've previously touched on potential intercompany loans going, uh, from Steinhoff Europe, um, going from, sorry, from Stripes to Steinhoff Europe. So the, the receivable would be at Europe, um, related to that mattress firm acquisition. So, Going to the actual statement itself, Visa said that that Steinhoff owns some excellent businesses. Um, he specifically referenced uh, Pepcor, um, and one one interesting aspect of the release was that he said that the the businesses have every potential of cr- continuing to create value for all shareholders and claimants after restructuring. Uh, the statement also says that the Visa Group is fully prepared to work with other claimants and shareholders to ensure that Steinhoff remains and continues as a sustainable company. This would require, among other things, a restructuring of Steinhoff's current debt. This prospect is based on the continued excellent performance of the Star Group, which contains most of the original Pepcor businesses, of which Steinhoff is currently the controlling shareholder. So now what does this mean for creditors? Yeah, it's hard to say at, at this point exactly what this means for creditors. It's still it's still pretty early stages, but we think VISA is trying to establish a seat at the table here. One thing to note is that SIHPL 
uh, has an Interco receivable from Steinhoff Investments. And when Steinhoff, the parent, acknowledged that Interco receivable, the, the 21 and 22 convertible notes uh, traded up roughly 10 points, which Reorg has written about previously. And the reason for that is because SIHPL is a guarantor under the 21s and 22s. And so the idea is that those convertible notes may have a potential link to the South African side of the business. Now you have Visa coming out and saying, I've got a 3.92 billion euro claim against Perico and SIHPL. So it remains to be seen sort of how that claim would impact those potential uh, recoveries from the, the, the existing intercreditor going from investments to SIHPL. Um, the other thing that, that that's interesting is the the um, the, the release repeatedly references uh, the amount of pe- value that that Pepcor has, uh, going in uh, going in so far as to say that the Star Group uh, contains most of the original Pepcor businesses. I think that that that, that that's a reminder um, to to creditors and to the company that you know Visa seems to be saying, look, I've I've got this relatively large claim. It's against uh, potentially against. Uh, some of the more attractive parts of the structure. Uh, so I have some negotiating leverage here, and then you need to deal with me. Wait, so Visa is the former chairman. Didn't he know about any alleged accounting irregularities at that time? So Visa's position is that the first time he became aware of the accounting irregularities was three working days before the accounts had to be finalized before for a December board meeting. So he says that he was completely taken by surprise. Interesting. And so then there was the AGM last week, right? Can you give us a recap of that? Sure. So some key takeaways from 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 the AGM slide deck uh, include the the fact that the group um, needs to find a sustainable solution for funding its ongoing working capital, interest, and professional fees. And then also the the slide deck uh, gave us some sort of a clue or, or hint as to how the company and its advisors are thinking about. Um, the capital structure with its various pockets, um, it, it broke down the the cap stack into four clusters. So there's the South Africa debt cluster, uh, the convertible bond cluster, the hemisphere cluster, and the Sieg and Stripes cluster, Sieg being S. Steinhoff Europe AG. Okay, so what's the company's level of engagement with these various debt clusters, and is there anything we can glean from the presentation regarding how these creditors will be treated? Sure. Steinhoff says that right now it's operating under an informal standstill with its creditors. Debt rollers, rollovers and lender requests are being managed on an ongoing basis. Um, so starting with the one, one key distinction that was made in the presentation, and that's Europe versus South Africa debt. So the company discusses uh, principles of creditor treatment to date. Steinhoff said that it paid interest and is repaying South Africa's debt. Uh, when it comes to the, the Europe side, though, um, the company said that Europe interest is being paid, but said, uh, quote, no, there said that there is, quote, no repayment of Europe debt, end quote. Moving on to um, another uh, interesting point, um, which is the treatment of the 750 million euro uh, hemisphere term loan. Um, so the group says that it's it's engaging uh, with creditors on an extension of that 750 million euro uh, 2018 maturity. Um, the Hemisphere term loan carries uh, w- reportedly w- w- carries a very low coupon. Um, around 80 bips, uh, and and it's unsecured. Um, so 
that could present an opportunity for lenders to ask for a higher coupon uh, with some collateral in, in conjunction with the amend and extend. Um, but like everything with Steinhoff, there are certainly some wrinkles there too because um, there are negative pledge provisions um, in the convertible bond documents and Steinhoff Finance, which is the convertible bond issuer, owns Hemisphere. Um, so it's uncertain um, how that amend and extend will shape up, but it's it, what we do know is that Steinhoff is currently engaged with those creditors ahead of that August maturity. Um, next, going to the 21 and 22 convert holders, the group says it's also engaging with those holders. Um, the 2023 convertible notes, Steinhoff says, are going to be dealt with as part of the Sieg slash Stripes U.S. proposal. And as a reminder, um, the 23s are guaranteed by the Parent Co. and by Steinhoff Finance, the issuer, um, but they are not guaranteed by SIHPL. Um, and so there's that distinction. And now the 23s um, are, are understood to be structurally subordinated to the Steinhoff Europe AG 2025 notes, um, at least uh, regarding the, the Europe opcos, because the 2025s sit closer to those opcos. So one question, uh, one, one thing to look out for will be um, how that structural subordination will come into play when dealing with those 23s as part of any proposal involving uh, Steinhoff Europe AG creditors. Um, the other uh, interesting distinction in the presentation uh, regards wording. So when the companies discussed or when the company talked about in the presentation the hemisphere debt, it said that it is uh, engaging with creditors on an extension of that maturity. However, when discussing the uh, 770 million euros of upcoming maturities in July and August um, at Steinhoff Europe AG, the company said it is engaging on a restructuring plan which will include treatment of 770 million euro. So you have um, the 770 million euro debt that's also maturing in July and August of 2018. The distinction between saying that you're going to um, that you're working with creditors on an extension of the Hemisphere August 2018 maturity versus uh, treatment of the 770 million euro seed debt seems to pre present a potentially interesting dichotomy in terms of how uh, those those creditors could be could be treated in any sort of restructuring plan. Okay, so let's turn to the PwC investigation, which um, already has confirmed that there were a pattern of transactions over a number of years that led to the material overstatement of income and asset values. Can you give us a status update there? Yeah, so PwC is is currently assisting the, the Steinhoff Group in determining the financial impact of the uh, overstatements. Uh, PwC expects that the investigation is going to be substantially completed uh, by the end of 2018. That's an important deadline uh, because you know once once PwC completes that investigation, um, Steinhoff's creditors will presumably have a little more clarity on uh, what's going on and and how severe uh, the re the financial restatements are. And then um, once there's a little more clarity, you can start to make some underwriting decisions um, as a lender. Um, and so the expectation um, or one thought in the market is that the, the company will ask for waivers uh, from some of its near-term uh, maturities. Um, you could you, you potentially seek a waiver until um, that PwC investigation is finished. And then once there's a little more clarity on the financial 
is you can start to talk about um, you know actual sort of re- restructuring or, or and or refinancing steps. All right. So enough about Steinhoff. Can you give us a quick Venezuela update on the bondholder group that formed? Does this mean that we're going to see creditors start to get more active there? Yeah, sure. On April 20th, a, a group of holders of Venezuela and PDVSA bonds said that they tapped Milstein and company as, as a financial advisor. Um, regarding the, the question on whether or not we're going to start to see creditors take enforcement steps, I think probably not. Um, you know, you've got an election scheduled for May 20th. The international community has sanctions in place against against Maduro and his administration. Um, if if Maduro wins, which is which is largely expected, um, in in some sort of scenario where he immediately decides to engage in creditors, which is highly unlikely. Even in that very unlikely scenario, it would still be difficult to restructure because let's say you exchange um, your existing claims for new paper, that probably won't work because of the these the sanctions are in place. So not only do you have um, uncertainty around the election results, you have uh, a lack of clarity about how to proceed um, in the likely scenario that, that Maduro does win. Um, the group said that it's working with the Institute of International Finance, or IIF, to ensure that any eventual restructuring is consistent with principles of stable capital flows and fair debt restructuring. Okay, so if that's the case, then what do you think the group's goals for now are? So according to the release, the committee organized in order to be in a position to evaluate statements made by Venezuela and PDVSA with regard to their present situation and financial condition, to facilitate communication among bondholders and other stakeholders, and three, to consider financing alternatives under an appropriate policy scenario. So I think primarily the group was formed um, just to, again, like, like the release says, to facilitate communication. Um, now you, you have bondholders that can um, you know, act, act, act together and sort of uh, have this information sharing platform. Um, I think that it's very telling that when they discuss the, the consideration of financing alternatives, the, the release adds under an appropriate policy scenario. Um, so it seems like from the group's perspectives, perspective, uh, unsurprisingly, um, there will be there will have to be some, some policy changes um, before financing alternatives are, are actually considered. Okay, and speaking of Latin American names, um, I've heard that at this stage, the Oro Negro dispute now involves three different courts in three different countries, plus NAFTA, Cedril's owner John Fredrickson, and some well-known distressed funds. This sounds extremely complicated, but let's start off simple. What's the situation here? Yes, it is. It is extremely complicated. Um, but essentially, at a high level, you've got 916 million of bonds uh, due in in 2019. Um, the bonds don't trade very frequently. The, the bid asks are some of the bid asks that are being quoted um, are pretty wide, um, but but you know, roughly speaking, it's being quoted at around uh, 45.75. Um, Oro Negro Drilling PTE, um, which is the issuer of the bonds, owns five special purpose vehicles, um, which are uh, incorporated in Singapore. Those SPVs are basically rig-owning entities, and the bonds are secured by a pledge of stock in Oro Negro Drilling PTE, as well as mortgages on the, the five, uh, on five jackups. Any sense on the value there? So going off what uh, the Oro Negro's foreign representative said in in, in the company's in in uh, Integradora and Perforadora's filings, 
Um, it was said that the rigs are worth 120 million to 160 million without a contract, and 200 280 million to 320 million with a contract. On a, a, a data point um, that's often cited is, is the board drilling transaction. Um, a few months back, board drilling purchased nine rigs for wh- roughly 1.3 billion. Um, from a shipyard and board drilling's presentation uh, sort of confirmed that the way they're thinking about it is a, a, a per rig value of uh, 139.5 million. So that would be within uh, within that that 120 million to 160 million range um, that the foreign representative cited. Um, uh, but but the the problem is um, is that you know it's not as simple as saying okay. Uh, here's where I'm creating the the bonds based on where they're 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 being quoted. Uh, I'm getting five jackups. Here's what these they're they're worth. Um, because there's a lot of process risk around the, the various litigations, uh, and and so which which is to say that it, it it's going to be difficult um, and 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 certainly timely uh, to actually recover on the collateral if bondholders are even successful in doing so, um, and. Also, the jackups are currently idled, which means they're 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 essentially just burning up backs until they can find a contract. The company said that right now it, it costs uh, roughly six million per month to maintain operations, including the five idle jackups, and acknowledged that the group is running out of cash. So now we've talked about Oronegger drilling, but the entities that filed for Chapter Fifteen are Integradora and Perforadora. Where do they fit into the structure? Perforadora is owned by Integradora. Perforadora leases rigs from Oronegro Drilling PTE under lease agreements that are called Verbo Charters. Okay, and why did these two entities file for Chapter 15 in the first place? Is there a plan? So Integradora and Perforadora uh, filed for Chapter 15 because they want to have the Concurso Mercantil that's ongoing in Mexico recognized by the U.S. courts. They also want to obtain provisional relief, which includes a stay on legal actions against their assets, and they also plan to seek uh, documentary and testimonial discovery from AMA Capital Partners, Deutsche Bank, Nordic Trustee ASA, Pemex, which is represented by Cleary Gottlieb, Oro Negro's competitor CMEX, which is also represented by Cleary Gottlieb, and an ad hoc uh, group of bondholders comprising Alterna Capital, Asia Research and Capital Management, or ARCM, CQS, KKR's Maritime Finance Company, and Ship Finance International Limited. Uh, Ship Finance International um, and Seadrill are owned by John Fredrickson. Ship Finance leases rigs to Seadrill. CMEX uh, is a JV between Fredrickson and David Martinez, Martinez's fintech advisory um, and interestingly, both FinTech and ARCM are investors in Cedril's new secured notes and rights offerings um, in Cedril's ongoing Chapter 11. And uh, Paul Weiss is, is representing um, the, the ad hoc group. And so, I mean, the, the allegation here is uh, coming from Perforadora is that it suspects that Pemex promised the ad hoc group that if the bondholders foreclosed on the jackup rigs, based upon Pemex's termination of the Pemex contracts, then Pemex would award the lease agreement to the bondholders. So basically, Perforadora is saying that Pemex and the ad hoc group worked up uh, on an, an arrangement whereby Pemex would terminate the contracts, um, the bondholders would then foreclose on the rigs, Pemex would essentially give the lease agreements to the bondholders, and Perforadora is saying, well, the bondholders include uh, ship finance, 
which is one of our direct competitors. So effectively, uh, Pemex is is working with uh, our direct competition um, to 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 essentially bankrupt our company is, is what Perforadora is alleging and and what is the subject of this discovery. And Rurik has written about these disputes extensively, and we have stories available on our website for our subscribers. So thank you, Kyle, and thank you, Ben, as well, uh, for joining me today. This has been our monthly international credit catch-up. Tune in next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Rio Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg. 